in the Christian environment in which I grew up, we had uh, frequent discussions about the nature of worldliness. And uh, worldliness was defined in terms of what we kids used to call the filthy five or the dirty half dozen. Christians don't drink, Christians don't smoke, Christians don't go to movies, Christians don't dance, Christians don't, uh, what, mixed bathe. There were a number of other things that uh, were added to the list. There was a sort of index of things that Christians didn't do. And uh, if you did these things, you were worldly, and if you didn't, then you weren't worldly. Now, my purpose this morning is not to extol the virtues of any of these things because I think there are probably Christian as well as non-Christian reasons for not doing some of these things. I personally don't smoke because I think I already have lung cancer from living in California. <laughs> and I rarely go to movies because there's, any, there's hardly anything worth seeing any longer. But the point I'm trying to make is that if we define worldliness in terms of a finite number of activities, we're in danger of losing sight of what worldliness really is. What we need to do is go back to Scripture and look for a biblical definition of worldliness because the problem is worldliness can encroach in ways that we're not aware of, catch us completely unawares. Now, the Bible defines worldliness as an attitude of independence from God. That's the wor world style. That's their lifestyle. That's their philosophy of life. Who needs God? You can be man without God or a woman without God. The world is simply a community of flesh-governed individuals. And as we've seen, the flesh is nothing more or less than our basic humanity. It's what we are apart from God. And when we operate on the basis of our flesh, we're worldly. Now, we may be doing good things. You, you can teach, teach a Sunday school class and be worldly if you're doing it in dependence upon yourself. You could even give witness to the gospel. And if you do it out of a sense of dependence upon yourself, you're worldly. See, as the world says you can do it, all by yourself. That's all you need is you and the resources that you have. Uh, when we spent time with the Pedicords last December, we spent endless hours discussing all sorts of things. And this is one of the issues that we spent some time talking about. And Clark made an interesting comment. He said that he had just talked to Francis Schaeffer the week before. And Schaeffer said, in his opinion, the most diabolical movie of the past decade was The Sound of Music. Because the underlying philosophy of the sound of music is it all depends upon you. You remember that song that Julie Andrews sings when she's making her way up from the, uh, from the nunnery? She sings, I have confidence. Confidence, you see, I have confidence in me. And that's a philosophy right out of the pit. Now the point that I want to make is that we really need to be discerning and if and if we're going to define worldliness, we have to define it on a biblical basis and not limit it to certain activities that we define as worldliness. Now, that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, I really believe. It's catching the Pharisees up short. Because they had a tendency to define sin on a very narrow band. If you did these things, then you were righteous. If you didn't do them, you weren't. And they had missed the whole point of the law. So we saw last week they were saying it's a sin to murder. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. And we all would agree it's wrong to take a life un unlawfully. It's wrong to murder. 
But Jesus says the intent of that law is to deal with all of our hostility toward one another. Our problem is that we really don't like people other than ourselves. And the same will that separates us from God separates us from one another, and there's just a, there's just a problem in the human heart. We just don't like hu- human beings. And we show it by the resentment in our heart toward people that cross us and toward the terms that we use to refer to them, the derogatory references that we make toward people. What an idiot. What a dummy. Or as Jesus puts it, we call them reka, not heads, empty-headed. And you see, what, what God wants is reconciliation. He wants us to be the, the initiator in human relationships that are deteriorating, to put people back together rather than, than cause the disintegration of, of relationships. Or the Jews were saying it's a sin to commit adultery, and we would all agree that that's a sin. But Jesus points out that behind that law is the idea that we need to sit in judgment on the sexual fantasies in our minds that erode away the love relationship that we have with our mates. And a man can say, well, I never commit adultery. But if he's fantasizing, if he's playing the field mentally, it's just as erosive of the relationship with his wife, just as destructive. The intent of all of Scripture is to make of us men one, a one-woman kind of man. A man who, who loves his wife with all of his heart and who pours his energies and time into making that relationship go. See, that's the intent of the law. I, I know of some churches that bar men from official boards because they've been divorced. We don't, by the way, but there are some who do. Even where a man has, uh, has biblical justification for remarriage. They base it on the passage in 1 Timothy where Paul says an elder ought to be a, the husband of one wife. And the point of that statement is not that he ought to have never been married to other than one person because the issue is not divorce or polygamy. It's the intent of the heart. Is he a one-woman kind of man? Is he committed to his woman at this point in his life? And the big question we have to ask ourselves as elders is, am I that kind of man? Am I pouring my life into making that marriage and that relationship what it ought to be? See, that's, that's the deeper intent of the law that we miss. We can say, well, I don't commit adultery, but we can miss the whole point of that particular requirement. Or the Jews were saying it's a sin to abuse your wife, to throw her out of the house without taking care of her and her needs. Jesus says she can be in the house and you can remain married and you can still abuse her. You can be taking care of her physically and providing adequate money and a home to live in, a car to drive, clothes to wear, but unless you're meeting the, the deeper emotional needs of her life, then you somehow miss the point of that, of that law. You spend all your time all your spare time in the mountains or in the desert or watching TV or playing basketball or racquetball or whatever, and you're not spending time developing your relationship with your wife, then you've missed the point, you see. Now, last week we looked at three examples of Jesus' teaching where he takes the law and shows us what the deeper import of the law is. This morning we want to take three more. All of these taken from the book of Leviticus which in the Old Testament is called the Holiness Code, or at least that's the term that, that we apply to that section in Leviticus from chapters 19 through 26. It's called the Holiness Code because it, chapter 19 begins with the command, Be holy because I am holy. 
And by holy, God means different, set apart, different from the world. And it was these regulations that made Israel different from the world around them. So it's significant that Jesus would take samples from this portion of the law. And we need to, to keep in mind, again, that the Lord is not giving us additional laws and regulations to live by. These, these uh, interpretations of the Old Testament are simply suggestive. He's, he's giving us an idea of the kind of thing that, that the law is really after. And we come to the fourth example, or fourth illustration of Jesus' teaching in verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard, I'm in chapter 5, by the way, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That was the law taken from Leviticus 19. But I say to you, and here's Jesus' interpretation of that, of that regulation, make no oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond this is of the evil one. Now this, uh, this particular uh, law in Leviticus 19 that Jesus quotes is an interpretation of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take up God's name in an empty way. And uh, there are a lot of different applications of that particular law. It applies to swearing. We're not to use God's name in that empty way. Use it to no, to no purpose in a curse word. It also applies to using God's name to endorse some ungodly cause. The Crusades would be a good example of one major violation of the Third Commandment. There's hardly anything good that can be said about the Crusades, and yet they were undertaken in the name of God. I heard of a couple one time who were having a little bit of uh, having a bit of difficulty because the man announced to his bride that God had told him that they were to get married, and the problem was God hadn't uh, revealed that to her as yet, and it struck me that that is a violation of the third commandment, taking up God's name in order to endorse some cause that uh, that's not uh, certain. And as the Jews interpreted the verse, or as Moses interpreted the verse in Leviticus, it applies to taking oaths or vows. The law states you shall not make false vows, that is, you shall not break a vow, not perjure yourself, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. In other words, if you use God's name in an oath, you take a, an oath to do a certain thing, you tell someone, by God's uh, will or in his name I will do this thing, and you violate that oath, and it's a very serious thing. That's the statement of the law on the face of it. But underneath, the intention of that law is to keep people from lying to each other. Because the problem with the world is that it's a fallen world, and we're all a bunch of liars. We tend to exaggerate and deceive one another, and that's why we have to have laws, to contracts, and that sort of thing to keep from, from uh, reneging on our word. We can't be trusted. A friend of mine says, in God we trust, everybody else pay cash, because he's the only one who's trustworthy. Now, that's the problem. That's why the world is so chaotic. 
because we lie to one another. And so this law was intended to make us truthful, to promote veracity, because the mark of God's children is reality. They tell things like, like they are. But the Jews had a very clever way of, of evading the intent of this law. They obeyed the letter of the law by simply not swearing in God's name. They never took a vow in God's name because they knew they were inclined not to follow through, and so they simply didn't take oaths in God's name. So they didn't violate this law. They took oaths by the temple, or by the altar, or by their head, or by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin, or whatever, but they didn't vow in God's name. And they had worked out a very clever ascending scale of obligation. They said, uh, well, now, if you, if you swear in the, by, the, by the temple, you can break that, that uh, oath. That's not binding. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, that's binding. If you swear by the altar, you can break that. But not by the sacrifice, you see. And if you want a further exposition of that point of view, you can, you'll find it in Matthew 23, where the Lord really takes him to task. For this, this way of lightly disregarding the law, see? Now, lest we all get too smug, we all have the same uh, relative table of obligation. We wouldn't lie to our, to our wife, but we'll lie to our children. We'll tell them we're going to do something for them and, or with them, and then something will interfere, and we'll lightly disregard that. We'd never do that to a good friend. We'd never lie to the bank, but if we have a creditor who's pressing us and we can't make payment, we'll tell him on the phone, well, the check's in the mail, and we know good, good, good we know well it's not. And we have the same sort of relative way of thinking that the Jews had. And Jesus' application here is very simple. He just says, tell the truth. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Don't, we don't need oaths. Because our word is good. If we say we're going to take an assignment and something interferes, there's a foot of powder on the mountain and it's the best skiing of the year, but we've said we're going to do something else, we should do it. We need to stay by our word. Our word should mean something if we're God's children. If we're under pressure to lie, we should tell the truth, even if it hurts, even if it's embarrassing, because that's the mark of a son of God. When I was in school, I had a good friend uh, whose name was Gordon Donaldson. He worked for the Navigators, the Christian organization, the Navigators. He'd been a, a fighter pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force during the Second World War. And he was a sort of hero, war hero. He'd been decorated a number of times for bravery and had a bunch of hairy stories to tell about near escapes. And... Uh, he was the man who introduced me to Bible study, and I had the deepest regard for him. He was telling me one day that he had been asked the week before to speak to a group of Christians at a conference center. And when he was introduced, the man who introduced him told a story that Gordon had told himself years before, which was an outright lie. He had been returning from a mission, and uh, something had happened, and when he got back, he embellished the story a little bit and he made it a little bit better than it was and it started circulating that he had done this uh, 
extremely courageous thing, and it went all over the Royal Canadian Air Force that he was this kind of man, and the story made its way through Christian circles, and when this man introduced him, he heard this story that he hadn't heard for ten years or more. And he had to stand up and say, gentlemen, it's a lie. I told a lie. That didn't happen to me. Now, that's embarrassing. But you see, that's the kind of veracity that God expects of us. As God's children, we will tell the truth, no matter what pressure we're under. And anything else, Jesus says, is of the evil one. Satan is uh, the big liar. He told the biggest lie that's ever been told on, on this earth. He told Eve, if she ate the fruit of the tree, she would not die. And that was a lie, because she did. And Adam did, and, and it plunged the entire race into, in, into death. You see? Satan is a liar and a murderer, Jesus said. And if we align ourselves with him and, and, and lie, then we're, we're like Satan. But on the other hand, God never lies. He always tells the truth. Can you imagine how, what it would be like if we couldn't trust God? But Paul says he's the God who cannot lie. And if we're his children, we won't lie. We won't exaggerate. We won't elaborate these stories of our hunting trips or whatever, you know, beyond simple truth. People will be able to trust us. We'll speak the truth. Now, let me say parenthetically that some have, have tried to apply this passage to oath-taking in a court of law. It simply doesn't apply. It's not Jesus' point. That's the same sort of legalistic application that, that, the, that the Pharisees were making in Jesus' day. It's right for Christians to subject themselves to their government and to take an oath in a court of law because that's a concession to the fact that most people in the world will not tell the truth. So they have to be bound by law to tell the truth. And because we live in a sinful world, we, don't, we need to subject ourselves to oath-taking in a court of law. We don't need it because our word is good, should be good. But we should be willing to uh, solemnly swear to take whatever oath is necessary. And by the way, there are some examples in the New Testament of oath-taking by Jesus and the apostles. When he stood before the, the high priest, Jesus himself was placed under an oath, which he accepted. Paul frequently will vow by the name of God. And uh, perhaps the most interesting passage of all is in Hebrews where God himself swears by himself. He said to Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your seed. And uh, the author of Hebrews makes the point that, that there's a double oath because God himself is trustworthy, but then he vows by himself. So oath-taking itself is not the problem. You see, what the law is trying to get at is that deeper level that we as God's children ought to tell the truth. As Paul puts it, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. The fifth example is in verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other Turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 
Now again, Jesus begins with a quotation from the book of Leviticus. This this time is from Leviticus 24. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that is an Old Testament citation. He's just drawing this statement right out of right out of the law. And there are two things to be said about this statement. The first is that that law is addressed to the state, not to individuals. To judges, magistrates, and courts. That's what lawyers today would call the lex talionis, the law of retribution or retaliation. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not a, it's not a personal code, you see, but that's the way the Pharisees of Jesus' day were interpreting it. That's the way individuals ought to live. You know, you touch on my car, I bend to your nose, that sort of thing. You mess with me, you're going to get it back in the same measure in which you give it. But uh, it's, it's never intended for the individual. You see, I don't have the, if my neighbor takes the, wife, the life of one of my children, I don't have the right to go next door and, and take the life of one of his children. Only the state has that sort of responsibility. So these words were not addressed to the individual. The second thing I would want to say is that the purpose of this law was to control and root and reduce excess because the tendency of most people is to punish too much, to go too far. So the purpose of the law was to fit the punishment to the crime. So the punishment wouldn't be excessive. So only an eye could be taken for an eye, not a lie which would be the natural tendency of fallen man. Joshua came home the other day and he said, Ricky, who's a little boy that lives down the street, Ricky can't come out of his house until next June. <laughs> and I said, what in the world did he do? I don't know, but he's grounded till June. Carolyn's comment was, uh, I don't know who's being punished, Ricky or his mother. <laughs> And the next day, sure enough, he was out on the streets again. But, I, you know, as a parent, I've heard myself say the same things. All right, you know, you won't see that car to the end of your life. Or some stupid statement like that. Because the tendency is, is to overkill, to go way too far. So the purpose of this law was to con- control that sort of violence and keep us from going too far. But the Jews had applied it in a very legal, rigid way, and they, were, they had made it a personal code of conduct. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And perhaps even more than, than you bargained for. But Jesus said, don't retaliate at all. Isn't that amazing? Don't defend yourself at all. Verse 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Now some people would apply this to state policy, national policy, but again, Jesus' interpretation of this law has nothing to do with national policies to be applied to individuals and the way they relate to other people. I spent, uh, Steve, too, endless hours debating this passage with people uh, when I was working with college students because many of them were pacifists on the basis of this passage. Some very extreme pacifists who believe that there shouldn't be courts, there shouldn't be laws, there shouldn't be a police force, because Jesus said, don't resist evil. But if that's what Jesus is saying, then he's in conflict with other passages in the New Testament, because Paul clearly says in Romans 13, and Peter in 1 Peter 2, that nations have the right of national defense. They have the right to raise an army, to conscript young men and women, if necessary, to raise an army 
and to defend the borders of that country. That's their national right. They're not to enter into wars of aggression, but they can defend themselves from, uh, from aggressors. And Peter puts it even more strongly. They bear the sword, that is, they carry the instrument of capital punishment. Now, I'm not here trying to argue who should go into the army or whether we should have a draft. I'm just saying that the New Testament clearly teaches that nations have the right of national defense. Jesus is not talking about that here. He's talking about personal relationships and how we react when our personal rights are violated. It's very clear from the illustrations which Jesus uses, and there are four of them. The first has to do with our response when someone insults us, the case of the backhanded slap. Verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Augustine was the first to to note that given the fact that most people in the world are right-handed, if you're simply assaulted by someone, they would hit you on the left cheek. So Jesus is not here talking about an assault upon your person. If you're mugged in the middle of the night, or someone assaults your person, you can defend yourself. He's talking about an insult here. How do we react when someone insults us? When we get the backhand slap, either literally or figuratively, when someone criticizes us for something we do, when they talk about us behind our back, when they tell us we didn't do something right. You know, most of us are like little tins of nitroglycerin. Someone jostles us and boom, we just blow up. He's talking about that sensitivity and touchiness that is a sign that we're preoccupied with ourselves. And Jesus says, when someone does evil to you, don't resist that evil. Just take it. As the Lord Jesus himself did. And Carolyn says to me, please don't trim your beard over the bathroom sink. And I say, I always clean up after myself. And I'm violating this, uh, in principle, this statement. And then the second illustration where, which Jesus uses has to do with those cases where we're defrauded, where our legal, legal rights are taken from us. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. By uh, Jewish law, uh, they could take your inner garment, but they could not take your outer garment because that was the heavy cloak that they wore in cold weather and which they covered themselves with at night when they slept. And much like our homestead laws today, they were intended to, uh, they were based on humane uh, principles. You don't take too much away from a person. But Jesus says when someone sues you and they, they take something away from you, don't resist. Just give up the things that are so important to you. And you see what Jesus is talking about is our tendency to, to be greedy and hang on to our possessions and insist upon our legal rights and that everybody treat me fairly. There's a man in this congregation that uh, told me a few weeks back that someone had built a house on his property inadvertently. They uh, built a little outbuilding, actually, on a strip of land that was his. The property lines had been drawn improperly, and this man built a little house right on his property. And when he found out about it, he went to talk to his neighbor, and the man said, that's uh, the way it goes. There's my uh, building. And... uh, There's not much you can do. So he said, well, wouldn't you be willing to pay a certain amount for that piece of property? The man said, no. 
So my friend just turned it over to his attorney. He didn't want to get involved in a hassle with the man. Things got worse and worse, and the man got very upset and angry. And about a week ago, he told me, you know, he said, I, I called it off. I called my attorney and just said, forget it, even though I'm going to lose money. Because people are more important than that property. And I'm hurting that elderly gentleman, and I'm not going to do it. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about. Even though we have legal rights, we may in certain circumstances set aside those re- legal rights because people are more important than things. We ought to love people and use things, and, and because we're fallen, we tend to turn that around, and we love things and we use people. And people are just the obstacles in the way to our progress, and if they cross me or they invade in some way against my legal rights, then I'm going to do whatever I can can do to, to secure my rights. And it's that attitude that Jesus is talking about. You see. And then his third illustration is one that pinches all of us. It's government intervention. Verse 41. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Now in those days, because they didn't have the means of conveyance that we have today, the Roman, Roman soldiers could force a civilian to carry baggage for one mile. But to prevent excesses, they could only carry it one mile. And here's where government was intruding, right into human affairs. Government went way beyond their uh, assigned uh, place in society at this point, see. And that always rubs us the wrong way. We don't like that. We see what Jesus is getting at is that inherent distaste that we have for authority. We don't want anybody to tell us anything, and particularly the government. They're not going to tell me where I can take my vehicle. They're not going to tell me how big the rooms in my school have to be. See? And we all got it. It's all there. It's that distaste for authority. And Jesus says, all right, if they tell you to go a mile, go two miles. If they tell you to keep your vehicle out of, out of a certain portion of the wilderness, and keep it out. You may not like the law, and in our system of government, we can change the laws, we can elect other people, we can make changes, but as long as the laws stand, if we're God's men and women, we'll obey them. We'll submit to authority. We'll go beyond the point of mere submission, uh, mere obedience. See, there'll be a submissive heart and spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Fourth illustration is in verse 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And here he's not talking about giving our money away to people that are going to abuse it or spend it foolishly or waste our possessions, or break them. That's not the point. He's talking about the tendency we all have to be acquisitive and greedy and possessive. And and to say what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and you can't have it. But Jesus says, no, we need to, to be loving, giving people. Generous with our time, our energy, and our things, our vehicles, our houses, our possessions. To be willing to to share as people have legitimate needs. And then finally, the sixth example which Jesus calls to our attention is in verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? 
And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here again he quotes the law, this time from Leviticus 19.18. Unfortunately, the New American uh, Standard Bible makes it appear as though the entire clause is part of the quotation. Actually, the, the quotation is simply the first statement, you shall love your neighbor. And the phrase, hate your enemy, was the inference that the Pharisees made from the law of loving your neighbor. To a Jew, his neighbor was another Jew, a fellow Israelite. And the book of Leviticus says you're to love your fellow Israelites. And they inferred from that that you're to hate everyone else. And they hated Gentiles with a passion, called them dogs. Would have nothing to do with them, cut themselves off from them. Wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't speak to them. Lived in isolation, even though they were surrounded by Gentiles. And Jesus says again, you've, you've lost your way, you've missed the point. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, love your enemies because God does. God loves unbelievers. He loves non-Christians. It rains on the farms of non-Christian farmers as well as Christian farmers. The sun shines on the, the fields and the life of the most hardcore unbeliever because God loves them and he sends joy and mirth and happiness and a measure of peace into the homes of non-Christians as well as Christians because he loves them. And so do his sons. If we're going to reflect the family likeness, then we need to love people as God loves them. Therefore, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. By perfect, he means complete with regard to love. The term means to fill something out to its fullest extent. He means love people like God loves people. That's all. None of us can be perfect in the sense that we're sinless. But because we have the love of God, we can love people perfectly, even people that don't love us. Because Jesus says, if you love those who love you, that's nothing. Even the publicans, the tax collectors do that, and they're the scum of the earth, as they would think. But you're to love people who don't love you, because that's the way God loves the world. Even when we were sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. And if you just greet your brothers on the street, that's nothing. The real issue is, what do you do more than those who are around you? In other words, is there anything really special about you and me? What does the world think of when they see us? Do they think of us as a people who simply don't do certain things? Who go to, to meetings frequently? Who carry a Bible? Who use a special vocabulary? Who dress a certain way? who have a, a sort of strange code of ethics that they find it difficult to relate to, or do they see us as people who genuinely love them and care for them and are interested in them to an extent that no one else is interested? Now, that comes from God, and that can only come from God. There isn't one of us who can, who can live like that. It comes from our relationship to Him. My patron saint, A.W. Tozer, said... A real Christian is an odd number. 
He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, is strongest when he's weak, richest when he's poor, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes understanding. The man who knows God is not looking for anything he's found it. He's not searching for light, for upon him the light has already shined. His certainty may seem bigoted, but his assurance is that of one who knows by experience. His religion is not hearsay. He is not a copy, but a facsimile. He is an original from the hand of God. And have we let God fashion us after that, after that uh, model? Are we styled by his life, his grace? Are we like him? Do we bear the likeness of the family? That's the question we have to ask.